This is the New England Journal of Medicine COVID-19 update for September 22nd, 2021. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the Journal, and I'm talking with Eric Rubin, Editor-in-Chief, and Lindsay Baden, Deputy Editor. Eric and Lindsay, it's an eventful time for COVID vaccines. Last week, we got data about boosters, and this week, we got more data about how well two doses work. And there was a contentious discussion at the FDA about how best to use a third possible dose. Let's talk first about the data and then get to where we stand. Today, we published another article about the effectiveness of vaccination, this time among healthcare workers in the United States. How did this study work? This was a study performed by a CDC consortium spread across 25 states. It included more than a half a million healthcare personnel. About two-thirds of those were from acute care hospitals, and the rest were from long-term care facilities. The study extended from late December until mid-May, and vaccination rates across the facilities ranged tremendously from about 50% to more than 90%. All of the participants received one of the two mRNA vaccines. To calculate vaccine effectiveness, the investigators used a test-negative case control design that's similar to the ones we've seen in many other effectiveness studies. Each case, which was defined as appropriate symptoms together with a positive test for SARS-CoV-2, was compared with a case where someone had tested negative for SARS-CoV-2, and each was matched for site and the week of testing. Demographics and risk factors are collected by interviews or by surveys, and for each participant, their vaccination status was determined and separated into categories depending on the number of vaccine doses and the time since vaccination. The investigators measured effectiveness starting at 14 days after the first dose and six days after the second dose. So what did these investigators find? First, it's worth mentioning that this was a fairly large study with more than 8,300 positive tests. Almost 1,500 of these were matched one to two with controls. More than three quarters of the cases had received the Pfizer vaccine and the other quarter, as I said, had received the Moderna vaccine. Vaccine effectiveness rose from about 12% shortly after the first dose to about 90% after the complete vaccine schedule. The analysis held up pretty well across various subgroups and across different sensitivity analyses. Given the short time, it's difficult to assess waning of effectiveness, though it did appear that protection peaked about three to four weeks after the second dose of vaccine. I'd say altogether that we've gotten a pretty consistent message from early assays of vaccine effectiveness. At least for the two mRNA vaccines, effectiveness pretty closely matched the efficacy seen in phase three clinical trials. Of course, this study was done before the Delta variant appeared and times have changed. So Eric, I think that real world evidence is really important to further affirm the overall effect of vaccine, which is clearly beneficial. However, these types of data are challenging to interpret for a variety of reasons. This test negative design tries to minimize the bias of health seeking behavior, which is an important methodologic advance that we've discussed before and makes these groups more comparable. However, it still is very difficult to control for the baseline considerations such as who gets vaccinated earlier versus later, as this is not random. But overall, as you say, these data do support a very consistent effect across many different studies and types of data sets of a strong benefit of vaccination. I do want to highlight one other very important consideration, 
And this came up during the FDA advisory committee meeting, as well as in many circles. What do we care about? And the endpoint of greatest interest to determine benefit. Is it occurrence of disease, illness, severe illness, such as hospitalization, death, infection, transmission? These are all very important endpoints of great value, but they're measured differently. And I think they have different implications clinically and for society. And we have to think carefully about that as we better define vaccine rollout and what we see as societal benefit. It's a good point, Lindsay. In general, the easiest thing to measure is the number of cases, or at least the number of cases that are reported because testing is performed. And in general, that's what most studies have used if they're using demographic data. It's much more difficult to look at individual medical records and determine the extent of disease, for example, or disease severity, which is defined in different ways in every one of the studies that we look at. So most of the real-world effectiveness data we're going to get is going to look like this. It's going to be cases. Is it what we really care about? We care about it to the extent that it involves transmission, because if people don't get infected and therefore don't transmit, there's an effect on the size of the epidemic, which is important. Failing that, however, I think you're right. In most cases, we really care about avoiding illness. And of course, the tip of the iceberg, severe illness. And I think that distinction is very important. And it's one that hasn't always been made. And I think, Eric, as you point out, these real-world effectiveness data and many of these observational retrospective data sets rely on the types of data collected clinically. So therefore, what's in the medical record? And that has certain elements of convenience and potentially large scale and intrinsic weaknesses about what's collected clinically. And is it collected in a similar way across domains? And that becomes an important consideration in how best to interpret these data. Whether one ICU stay is equivalent to 100 symptomatic illnesses at home that's a self-limited cold, gets very complicated to assess, especially when they cannot be measured evenly. But overall, when one prevents severe disease, there typically is a gradient of a decrement of mild disease with a decrement of asymptomatic illness. This is a continuum of infection and how vaccines and other treatments can ameliorate that spectrum with usually the largest benefit with the more severe the illness. And this, the FDA discussed substantially last year as these studies were being launched in how we think about measuring COVID-associated illness and how to prevent it, given the frequency of endpoints. One will have a lot more modest clinical illness, then we'll have ICU admissions. And therefore, the ability to assess endpoints in a short amount of time with a strong biologic rationale associated with the greatest benefit, which is severe illness. This week, we have the final results of the phase three trial of mRNA-1273, the Moderna vaccine. Lindsay, I know that you were an investigator in this trial, so why don't I ask Eric to explain it, and then you can correct him. 
Steve, we've spoken about the preliminary results of this study that were published earlier this year. This is the final analysis with the data cut off at the end of March. There are about 15,000 participants in each arm who received either vaccine or placebo. As in the original study, the vaccine was tolerated pretty well with the usual set of early reactogenic symptoms that generally resolved quickly. The follow-up was excellent with most participants completing the full two-dose series. Altogether, the efficacy of two doses starting two weeks after the second dose was 93% against confirmed cases and more than 98% against severe disease. The vaccine didn't prevent asymptomatic disease quite as well with an estimated efficacy of about 63%. But since there wasn't routine testing built into this study, that number has to be a pretty crude estimate. Once again, the watchword is consistency. Until Delta came along, the mRNA vaccines were highly efficacious in studies and for the most part, equally effective in the real world. But once again, this study was done before the Delta variant became dominant. And as we were saying before, this is a different time. So Eric, I think that these data affirm what was previously observed after about two months of follow-up, now with five to six months of follow-up. And as you point out, the protection against mild to moderate illness and severe illness largely remain steady in the context of the circulating strains at the time, which was pre-Delta, as you note. An important set of observations in this study, as you highlight, is the estimated efficacy against asymptomatic disease of 63%. Not a straightforward number to derive, but associated with surveillance, PCR testing, and serology for the nuclear capsid, which are immunologic footprints of prior infection. And one can look at the 63% efficacy as a glass half empty or glass half full. My view is this is actually terrific because it is evidence of a decrease in transmission inferred by a decrease in asymptomatic acquisition in participants. Is it a bad thing? for us to turn COVID into the common cold and for individuals to have asymptomatic infection. In fact, that is how most of our respiratory viruses work. We don't know their name. We have transient infection. Our immunity gets established or gets boosted. And I think this is an element we as a community are gonna have to think about as it is clear that SARS-CoV-2 is endemic. It is well entrenched globally, it is not going away. However, if we're able to convert it to a mild infection, and in fact, block infection in many, is that an important step forward and another tool that we can think about using once we better understand its parameters? I think that the comparison with influenza vaccination is really imperfect and very overused. But this is probably a good example of how we use the influenza vaccine. The vaccine isn't that great. It's not highly effective and it doesn't protect very well against infection, but it does protect decently well against disease. And because of that, we have used it extensively. We highly recommend influenza vaccination really for anyone and require it for some people like healthcare workers in many parts of the country. If the vaccine were as good as the flu vaccine, then it would be useful. In fact, 
the studies that we're talking about right now done before Delta suggest that it's far better than the flu vaccine, but it has its limitations and it shares some of the limitations that influenza vaccine has. So in any world, this is an important vaccine. Is it perfect? No. And is it likely to become perfect? Probably not, but it's awfully good right now. Last week, an FDA advisory committee recommended approval of a third dose of BNT162B2, the Pfizer vaccine, for some, but not everyone who received two doses at least six months ago. How should physicians interpret this guidance? Well, first, this isn't any official guidance yet. There is no ruling by the FDA yet, and the FDA gets to decide, not the advisory committee. And then secondly, this will go to ACIP, the advisory committee to the CDC, which has not yet met, and they will recommend how the vaccines get used once the FDA approves their use. Also, this is an emergency use authorization. It's not an approval, so it will be temporary and limited. But I think what's more useful for our listeners is to think about the logic behind booster administration. Like any treatment or preventive measure, regulatory agencies weigh risk and benefit. We have pretty incomplete information on both scores, unfortunately. As we discussed last week, there was a benefit to a third dose of vaccine in Israel in older individuals at preventing severe disease, though severe disease was already relatively uncommon in this fully vaccinated group. In addition, as Lindsay's been talking about, the susceptibility to disease of any sort did decrease with a third dose. However, the follow-up time was very short, so we don't know how persistent the benefit will be. And while a large number of people were vaccinated, it's not a randomized controlled trial, which can make it difficult to detect rare adverse events. Finally, the number of younger people who received a third dose remains very small. So at this point, it seems that the risk-benefit analysis looks favorable for older individuals and those at higher risk of disease. And I think the data are still out for lower risk people. But it's important to remember a couple of things. First, we only have data of this sort for the Pfizer vaccine. There isn't much to guide us for the Moderna vaccine, which we just discussed, and almost no data for ADCOVID-2S, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And the other thing to remember is the data are going to keep on changing. And in fact, specifically for Pfizer, because of the large Israeli experience, they're going to change very quickly. So the recommendations are going to change, and it's important not to get too attached to any particular set of guidelines. So Eric, as you point out, the Israeli data associated with third doses are incredibly interesting and provocative, but very challenging to interpret from my perspective. In part, It's a matter of days. They're measuring events over days. It's non-randomized. There are relative risks as opposed to absolute numbers, although difficult to understand when one is measuring things over days. But I do agree that the fundamental observation is a decreased attack rate of SARS-CoV-2-associated illness in this population over this time but I still think very challenging to really understand the quantitative nature of the observations. What's implicit in what we're facing as Delta emerges, as we are further away from our primary vaccination, as we see breakthrough illness, is to rapidly accrue data to shape our thinking 
and guide our decision-making, realizing that if we wait for perfect data a year from now, we'll have missed the benefit of intervening early. But if we intervene very early, we may have to recalibrate as better data emerge. And I think that's a good process, but it's a challenging process to communicate to the community because as data accrue, we may modify our recommendations and that is confusing. But I think that we cannot be slow in responding and using our tools, but we have to be nimble in accruing the data and utilizing them. I want to expand on something you said and turn to another point, Lindsay. I think you're absolutely right. The data are changing. It's really important to recognize first that that is going to be true. And second, that despite the fact that the data are imperfect, we have to make decisions. Therefore, we have to make decisions on incomplete data. That's going to be true now. It's going to be true in a month. It's going to be true six months from now. So I think it's reasonable to make choices based on what you know now. And that's what's happening. That's what the regulatory agencies are doing right now. That's what Israel already chose to do. I do want to discuss one important difference between Israel and the U.S., though. In Israel, most people are vaccinated. In the U.S., a smaller proportion of people are fully vaccinated. That means in Israel, a lot of transmission is occurring from fully vaccinated individuals. If vaccination has an effect on transmission, and that is an if, we don't know that, but if it is true, and certainly Israel is hoping that that's true, then decreasing transmission, even by a relatively small increment in Israel, can have a reasonably large effect on the size of the epidemic. On the other hand, in the US, if we were to decrease transmission by the same small increment, only among those vaccinated, we still have this large unvaccinated pool and it would have a minimal effect likely on transmission overall. So the effect on the epidemic size wouldn't be very large. So it may be more important in Israel to add a booster as a public health measure than it is here. Eric, I think that's a critically important point. There's vaccinating myself so I don't get severely ill. And there's vaccinating to block transmission. What we need are more data to understand how vaccination impacts transmission. It stands to reason that's the case. We've witnessed it in community outbreaks and how they are controlled in the dramatic decrease in hospitalizations earlier this year in many communities across the U.S. associated with the vaccine rollout. So I think there are indirect lines of evidence suggesting that vaccination has a salutary effect on transmission. We need more direct data to inform the policy in a way that can be more thoughtful. But I agree that that is a very important part of this process, and we need to incorporate that into our planning. I do also want to stress that on the boosting, there are many more questions about how to optimize boosting. There are the heterologous regimens, there's the dose, there is the time interval, there's how do we optimize immune responses. So I think there's a lot more that is going into and will continue to go into the boosting strategy. But it is going to be complicated and it's going to be very complicated in practice as our community has to decide how do we boost our patients 
when we have when we have imperfect data on how to combine the different vaccines over time and how to optimize the interval between vaccinations. In some ways, that's a little bit easier, as difficult as it is. It's a little bit easier in the U.S., where there are only a few vaccines and they're all reasonably highly effective, at least against the ancestral strains of the virus. In the rest of the world, remember, there are less effective vaccines being used, and it's going to be complicated to figure out how boosting should work with those. Should they be reboosted with the same vaccines, which had more limited efficacy, or should they receive heterologous vaccines, which might increase the efficacy? Those are really experimental questions, and I don't see those clinical trials being done at a scale that might help inform us right now. The major limitation here is that the vaccines just aren't available, especially the best vaccines, to much of the world. And until we solve that, it's going to be hard to figure out how best to use them. So, Eric, I want to highlight probably the most important point in my view, which is if we want to improve or block transmission, as you suggested, the real problem is getting first vaccinations into people globally. And that will have a bigger impact on global transmission of this virus than third doses on already vaccinated populations. And this is a big challenge that we have to face as a global community and as individual countries, because we will not have the effect we want on transmission if we don't address this from a global perspective. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Eric.